we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands, just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. A number of years ago, there was a book published called Albion's Seed, which traced different groups of British settlers in different parts of the country and how the characteristics they brought with them persist even to this day. It was really a remarkable and eye-opening book. And there's Along that theme of, I think, what they call cultural persistence was a recent book by a professor at George Mason University, Garrick Jones, called The Culture Transplant. Again, looking at how the culture that migrants bring with them doesn't just go away, it persists. And so to talk about this issue, specifically about an academic paper on this and then more broadly on the issue, is Jason Richwine of the Center who has uh, written a good deal on this. And this is a kind of thing that it's different from some of the other issues that are more easily quantifiable, more easily reduced to numbers, the economic issues, fiscal impacts. This is a cultural question, and it's both more fraught, but also often more difficult to get your arms around and to understand and talk about in a sensible and substantive way. But I think there is a way to do it. There clearly is. And Jason is participating in that conversation. So, Jason, thanks for coming onto the show. And if we'll start with the particular paper, the academic article in the journal that you just published, and then let's expand sort of the issue from there. So, what was this article about? Well, thanks for having me, Mark. The title of the article is Savings Behavior Among Immigrants and Their U.S. Born Children A Test of the Culture Transplant Model. And that is up now on in the journal Economics Letters. And we'll have a link to it in the uh, show notes. So what does this paper say? Well, one of the traits that Garrett Jones mentions seems to be persistent across generations after immigrants move is savings behavior, or you could call it frugality. And you can see why that's an important trait because, you know, a basic constituent of economic growth is savings. You need people to save their money, invest their money so that they can create large businesses and technology and such. So do immigrants save a lot of money and can we trace that pattern across generations? So he cited two papers in his book, one from the UK and one from Germany. Just to be clear, this is the culture transplant book that I'd mentioned by Garrett Jones. Right. The culture transplant. That's why it's a test of the culture transplant model. Right. The the title of my paper. So he, he has cites two different papers, one from the UK and one from Germany, both finding this persistence into the second or sometimes third generation. But no one had yet tested the U.S., and I thought that was pretty important because the U.S., of course, is the largest economy. It also has a much longer history of immigration than does the U.K. and Germany. So maybe things are different here. Maybe we have a stronger assimilation power than do those countries. So 
To measure savings in the U.S., I looked at retirement contributions, personal retirement contributions made to things like a 401k. It's not a perfect measure of savings, but it's pretty good. It's what the data allowed for. And what I found was something similar to what the authors of the UK and Germany studies found, which was that there's a strong correlation between the ancestral country savings rate and the personal retirement contribution. In other words, if, if an immigrant is from a country that has a high national savings rate, that immigrant tends to save a lot of money for himself or herself. And you might say, okay, well, that's the first generation. Isn't the real question what happens in the next generation? In the second generation, we're talking about people who are born in the U.S., but have at least one parent who was born outside of the U.S. Right. So when you're born in the U.S., you know, everyone in the second generation is born in the U.S., meaning they all are born into you know, a roughly similar economic situation, at least by world standards. Right. Mm-hmm. But here's where we, can, where we can really test whether that culture is still ongoing. And what I find is that the correlation is, if anything, stronger in the second generation than it is in the first. So people who were born in the U.S., but whose ancestral country has a high savings rate, also will save a lot of money themselves when they're adults in the United States. And you might say, okay, fine, but aren't there you know, confounding factors here? Maybe, maybe the countries that save the most are the wealthiest, and they send us the wealthiest immigrants, and if you have a lot of money— you also have a lot of money to save, right? Right. Well, you can control for that, which I did. Control for income, control for all sorts of things, demographic factors like age and sex, even skills like education. Control for all of those things, and you still see a statistically significant relationship here, again, between ancestral savings and individual savings, which is pretty strong evidence that this really is one of those transplanted traits, that when we take in immigrants, we are taking in a certain culture related to savings. Right. Obviously, that's interesting as far as savings goes, which isn't you know, an important issue, but does that phenomenon of transplanted culture show itself in other kinds of behaviors? Yes. So my paper is, is just one small part of a much broader literature about a wide range of traits that seem to be transplanted or passed down from immigrants when they join new countries. Uh, One of the most studied traits is civic values, especially social trust. How much do you trust others? And this has been studied, I think, at least since the 1990s, where, again, you see that same kind of rank order emerging, that correlation between trust in the ancestral country and trust among Americans who are descended from people who came from those countries. What I think is especially interesting about the social trust literature is that you can focus actually just on Europeans. A lot of people think, well, European Americans, white Americans, they're homogenous now, right? Well, not really. Not not if you scratch the surface. And what you can find is that if you look at Europe today, you'll find that Sweden has a greater civic culture than Italy, for example. You know, Swedes trust people more than Italians do. If you go to the United States today, you'll find that Swedish Americans are more trusting than Italian Americans. And again, it's not just those two countries, it's everything in the middle as well, fitting a remarkable correlation. And so we're talking third, fourth, fifth generation Americans at this point. I mean, the peak level of European immigration happened over a century ago. So yes, it could be fourth, fifth generation. You're still seeing those results. It's really a remarkable thing. And once you see that kind of result, I think you just have to realize that, you know, we need to stop thinking about nations as 
you know, an administrative zone or just one big labor market to which we might may or may not add workers. You know, the fact is that we have institutions that are supported by our culture. You know, a nation is a people and their culture. I really can't stress that enough that you can't think of immigration as being a matter of interchangeable parts. You have to be careful with who you select and in particular the numbers. The easiest way to sort of override our our natural institutions and the ones that we were built on is to have mass immigration. If you lower the numbers, that lowers the temperature and, and makes it a lot easier to deal with cultural challenges. The uh, And the interesting thing is that this isn't just an issue of foreigners moving to the United States. This same phenomenon even operates within the United States, right? In other words, um, there was, a, was research on people from the South moving to other parts of the country and how their characteristics, at least in part, persisted among their children and grandchildren, right? There are actually several papers on this, and the most interesting one actually came out. I think it postdated Garrett Jones' book, but definitely is supportive of his thesis. The basis of this paper was the fact that you know, most people understand that there was this great migration of blacks out of the South after the Civil War, and particularly the early part of the 20th century. Blacks tended to move to the big cities in the Northeast and the Midwest to work in factories there. What fewer people know is that there was also an outmigration of white Southerners from the old Confederate states. And on a percentage basis, this was smaller, but actually in terms of raw numbers, there were more whites moving out of the South than blacks. And they moved to different parts of the country. They did not move to Northeastern and Midwestern cities. They tended to move West, places like New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California, and also sort of North to the border states, you know, Southern Illinois and such. And what happened was they didn't just blend in to the new places they went. They didn't just assimilate to whatever the non-Southern culture was. Instead, they spread their culture there, exactly what Garrett Jones would have predicted. And I think that to talk about these results, it's always good to sort of you know, pre-register what you expect. They call it pre-registration you know, in order to ensure that researchers don't just, you know, just fiddle with their data long enough until they find something interesting, <laughs> right? So let's talk about stereotypes. This is the one group we're allowed to talk about stereotypes of, white Southerners. So what the researchers found was that when they looked in the 1940 census, okay, they could find the number of white Southern transplants. In other words, people who were born in the, in the, in the South, but now were living outside of the South. Because the uh, respondents actually listed the place of birth, is that why? Oh, yes, right, yeah. because you, you know what state they came from. Right. So the researchers tried to track the cultural changes that may have occurred and we can see today. So again, let's just pre-register our stereotypes. Okay, so if you're talking about white Southerners today, let's start with an easy one. Donald Trump, are they a yay or a nay on Donald Trump? Presumably a yay. Okay. How about abortion? Support? Uh, presumably oppose? nay. What kinds of churches do they build? More likely evangelical than Catholic or even mainline, probably. All right. How about music? Country music, bluegrass, that kind of thing I would expect. All right. Okay. The last one then is food choices. If you were given a choice between barbecue chicken and pizza, what does the average white Southerner choose? I don't know. I would put the barbecue chicken on the pizza, but oh, let's say chicken. Well, barbecue. you're obviously not a Southerner. Yeah. <laughs> or only half, maybe. Okay. Right. So that so we pre-registered our stereotypes. Now, would you be surprised if I told you the researchers found all of those things? In other words, as the population of white Southerners, the transplanted white Southerners in a county in 1940 increases. Today, in those same counties, you see greater support for Donald Trump, 
more opposition to abortion, more love for barbecue chicken and country music and so on. This is very much supportive of the Garrett Jones model. And the reason I like the paper so much is it really puts the open borders left in a difficult spot. Because on one hand, and if you look at Twitter, you'll see all those responses of the paper. You know, they are inclined to say, oh, those white Southerners spreading that culture we don't like all around the country. See, they I knew they were the root of the problem, right? I mean, you can see that and worse on sure. Twitter about this paper. And yet they're the same people who tell us that when, when immigrants come from all over the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, when they come to the United States, oh, they'll assimilate perfectly. The blank there's slate, no concern. basically. Yes, yeah. there, there's no concern. They're just going to become clones of us. And you, know, you can't hold both positions simultaneously. Right, it's just right. not consistent. Interesting. So the reaction some people are going to have, and I think this is a legitimate question, is are we saying that these are immutable characteristics? In other words, is this something inherent in being from Sweden, let's say? In other words, there's nothing sort of genetically programmed in a Swede to save more money for retirement. The question is, can these characteristics sort of be molded or shifted or or even kind of what is it a drift over time in a different direction well a couple of points there i mean one is that not all cultural traits are persistent right mm -hmm. there there are some that that jones and others find do change pretty quickly mm -hmm. one of them is sort of just sort of like basic social liberalism you sort of like role of women in society you People, even people who come from a traditional society seem to change pretty quickly when they come to the West on things like that. Interesting. So that's one thing. So remember, it's not all traits, but there are a few traits, I mean, more than a few, that don't seem to change very quickly, if at all. And they are important ones, savings rate being one, trust being another. I would be careful with the word immutable. You know, I think that carries a lot more weight than is appropriate. I think that persistent is a better word mm -hmm. because it's not that we know exactly why it's happening, but we do know the persistence is there. And I also don't think we should we should downplay that persistence because, again, there's a lot of literature on this and a lot, you know, sort of remarkable multiple generation literature on it. But again, I would just come back to the point that when you lower the numbers, these concerns are just much less on the front burner. Again, you know, I, I say this all the time that, you know, a nation is its people and its culture. And that foundation is something that we need to be very protective of. And if we have very low levels of immigration, there's really not much threat to it in the first place. Right. I mean, the way I like to describe that perspective is conservatism in immigration. And I don't mean that in a political sense, sort of a lowercase c. In other words, make small changes slowly because you don't know what the consequences of them are going to be. And that argues in this case, for a much lower level of immigration. But interestingly, Jones, Garrett Jones, in his book, The Culture Transplant, deals with this broad issue. He seems to make a more proactive argument that countries, for instance, seeking to develop more rapidly should be picking immigrants from particular places, basically saying that if you want your country to develop, import a lot of Chinese immigrants. It seems to me that is just as I don't know if pernicious is the word, but kind of wrongheaded as saying we need to have like ethnic filters in immigration. It just it strikes me as misusing or misinterpreting or maybe misapplying the findings here. 
I think a part of it is an attempt to stay on a kind of purely economic level for him. I mean, he is an economist, and clearly he's trying not to rock the boat a little bit too much with specific policy proposals. And I think that, again, if, if you are an economist who wants to think only about economic issues, you know, that's the kind of proposal that maybe you would come up with. I see. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I, a couple other points. One is he was more supportive of what you describe for, I think, middle income countries than he would be for already established wealthy countries. Okay. Because, and, and again, in fairness to him, you know, I don't, I don't mean to say that he is completely blinded to all non-economic things. In fairness to him, he talks about problems of cultural inco- incompatibility, you know, the challenges of, of ethnic diversity and the like in, in, in certain countries. And I don't know if this would be his opinion or not, but once you start taking in the cultural effects of immigration, I think that the potential benefit of, you know, 10 million Chinese to the United States, you know, is there some economic benefit to that? Probably. But is that going to change the culture in a way that I think is valuable for the United States going forward? I don't think so. I, in I think other words, there are other characteristics in addition to basically saving a lot of money that they're bringing with them because they're fully formed human beings. They're not just sort of one-dimensional inputs. Right. This is not just a one big labor market. America is more than that. Right. It's interesting. Jones has a quote he likes to say, which is that China is by far the poorest majority Chinese country. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that there's something to that, right? I mean, you know, the fact that wherever Chinese seem to go, particularly when they're a minority group in other countries in South Asia and the like, do quite well. But I don't think we could ignore the fact that China itself has had a lot of problems, which, you know, again, like any other country, could be related to, you know, the culture of the people there. And the, you know, a basic point here is that immigration is different from other policy areas, even if you're just focusing on economics, because if tax rates are too high, you can just, you know, a new Congress or a new president comes in and changes the tax rates, whereas immigration is actually adding to the people. It's a version of that famous quote by a Swiss-German writer who said above Germany when they imported all of these guest workers after World War II. And he said, we wanted a labor force, but we ended up getting human beings instead. And immigrants are people. That's, I mean, in a sense, that's the starting point of this whole issue. That was uh, also inspired the title of George Borjas's book. Right, I mean, right. We, we, we wanted, wanted workers, workers right? right? And, and we got human beings instead. Go figure. Right. Yes. And, and you're quite right. And I, I like to put it this way as well, that Taxes, regulations. I mean, taxes can go up and down. Right? Regulations can come and go. Uh, you know, a Democratic president puts in a regulation the Republicans don't like. The next Republican president can repeal it, as long as John Roberts gives him permission. <laughs> but immigration—that is far longer lasting. You know, when we take in immigrants, that that's a commitment to not just that immigrant, but then to all of of, of his descendants, and that can have a really big effect on what America looks like in the future. Right. Which is the point that. Sam Huntington, the late Sam Huntington, brought up. There was a quote he had about if different people had settled what is now the United States, it would have been a different country. What's what's that quote? Oh, I, I quote that all the time. That was from his, I think, his book on who are we. He posed a question. He said, "Would America be the same place if, in the 17th and 18th centuries, it had been settled not by British Protestants but by French, Spanish, or Portuguese?" And he goes on to answer his own question. He says, the answer is no, it would not be America. It would be Quebec, Mexico, or Brazil, end quote. 
And I think that's very telling. I mean, he's talking about you know, the founding institutions of America and how we have to be careful to preserve them. And, and as we discussed already, I mean, that doesn't mean you have to have only British Protestants coming to the United States, but it does mean that you have to be concerned, number one, about cultural compatibility. That's not something we can just dismiss. And, and the second is, again, you know, not to be too repetitive, but the numbers, you know, get the numbers down and this becomes a much smaller concern. And I think it's important to engage this issue, especially since uh, next year is going to be the 100th anniversary of the 1924 immigration law, which sought to deal with, in a sense, this issue, but in a way I think that was ill-considered. In other words, it didn't simply reduce the numbers. It attempted to kind of socially engineer the flow by saying, we're going to have this many people from this country and a smaller number of people from another country. And the end result was enormously positive by reducing immigration, giving the country a really two-generation breather to allow a kind of blending and knitting together that's necessary after a significant wave of immigration. But it did it in a way, because it had these national origin quotas, it almost had within it the seeds of its own repeal, rather than simply reducing numbers in a neutral way that didn't specifically take into account what the different cultural traits of immigrants are bringing with them. Because immigrants from different countries are going to bring different kind of cultural traits, the point being just lower the numbers so that those issues are simply less consequential, less salient. And so if you do get something wrong, it's not that big a deal. Right. And of course, what happened in 1965 is that there was an attempt to try to, to keep the populations roughly similar coming in with the family reunification provision of that right. bill. And initially it was thought, well, you know, the people who have family here are, are the people who were coming uh, pre-1924, but- What could go wrong? Yes, right. <laughs> Things have a way of happening in ways you, you don't expect. And that actually became, of course, a major driver of, of immigration from all over the world once sort of toeholds were, were established. Right. And, and again, it was both the 24 Act and I guess the 65 Act were, in a sense, inspired at least or, or in part by a kind of social engineering vision, when instead the issue should be, let's not take chances. You keep numbers low. The possible upside may be smaller. There's no question about it if there is upsides. But the downside's also a lot smaller. It's just safer. It's almost like diversifying your investments in a sense in a mutual fund. You're going to lose some huge gains you could have gotten if you, you know, bought Xerox and, you know, for two cents a share in 1952 or whatever. But you're also going to minimize the downside. It's simply a safer and more responsible way to conduct a people's business. And we're, of course, doing the opposite of right. that right now. I have to say, make sure everybody understands that. In fact, sort of tie this discussion back to, you know, what's going on right now on immigration policy. Your listeners know from all the past guests you've had about the crisis at the southern border, and we've had lots of, of guests on this show talk about exactly why we have so many people flowing in. And the basic theme of all of those discussions is that the administration right now is not just kind of looking away as people sneak across the border. This administration is facilitating illegal immigration through all sorts of means that you've had many conversations about in the past. And what I want to say about that is that 
in many ways, that is a threat to our democracy. And I know that that's a phrase that gets used, overused these days, but it really genuinely is. If you think about the administration using very legally dubious means to bring in far more immigrants to the United States than Congress ever authorized, or over 2 million, I think, so far under this administration, given what we know about cultural persistence, they are changing the country in the long run in a way that cannot be undone, right? Again, it's not like taxes, not like regulation. You can't undo it. They're doing this. And to the extent that they are suffering any political blowback, I imagine they see it as a kind of long-term investment. You know, it's a little difficult now, but the changes they're making, I think, you know, they probably see it as, as rather positive if you believe as parts of the left do these days, unfortunately, that uh, America, you know, its core is sort of corrupt and its history needs to be changed. This is fundamentally undemocratic. And that's what really kind of exercises me the most. I mean, the rule of law, obviously, is one of the first casualties of the southern border, but it's the long-term implications. The fact that we didn't vote for this, Congress didn't authorize this, but they're doing it anyway. And we're going to be feeling those effects for a long time. In a sense, it's sort of the flip side of what Coolidge said when he signed the 24 Act, which is that America must be kept American. In a sense, what you're arguing here is that the left is saying America must be made less American. My take on it is that even though I have no doubt there are people who have that perspective who are you know, allowing or even facilitating this flow, my sense is more that the people running this administration simply don't believe that it's morally legitimate to say no to anybody whoever it is that shows up. And it seems to me the argument there, data point in service of that, is that a lot of people on the right would say, well, if there were a lot of Republicans immigrating illegally or prospective Republicans, then they'd enforce the law. Well, they're letting huge numbers of people from Cuba in. And, you know, it's debatable whether the new Cuban immigrants are really as Republican as the old ones, but they're almost certainly somewhat more Republican, and they're going to be going into communities where that is the prevalent cultural or rather political background. So my point is, I mean, I get your point. I'm not sure how much of this is a conscious attempt to bring about the kind of cultural transplant that you're talking about so much as it is a surrender of the authority to say no to anybody. I think what you're describing probably is the larger motivation. Right. But in some ways, I'm not sure the motivation matters very much. Well, that's it's, true. The it's the consequences is, yeah, that matter. Consequences are what matter. Anyway, so let's uh, end it there. This was an interesting conversation about the issue of cultural transplanting by immigrants or even migrants of any kind, even domestic migrants, that people aren't just blank slates. Henry Ford, in a different context, said something along those lines. He said, how come every time I want to hire a pair of hands for my factory, there's this human being attached to them? And this is, in a sense, the basic insight that you have to take before you think about making immigration policy, that this isn't like importing refrigerators. Immigrants are people and they're part of our society. And when we let them in, we have an obligation to include them as part of our society, which makes it all the more important to be prudent about how we conduct our immigration policies in the future. Thank you for coming by, Jason. And uh, I'll have some comments on an issue in the news afterwards. But if there's more 
on this cultural transplant issue in the future. I hope you'll come back on and we'll talk about it again. It'll be my pleasure. And finally, the Washington Post has revealed what the July Border Patrol apprehensions numbers are. They haven't been posted officially yet, at least when I'm recording this. They will be at some point, but the Post got a sneak peek at them. And it turns out that the number of arrests by the Border Patrol between the ports of entry went up significantly, a 30% jump from June. Now, ordinarily, you know, there's fluctuations that wouldn't necessarily be big news. But in this case, the decline in June from the previous month was held up by the administration as sign of the success of the administration's policy of, they won't put it this way, but funneling illegal immigration through the ports of entry using the CBP-1 smartphone app that we've talked about a number of times on this podcast. In other words, the point is people who would otherwise have crossed illegally will make an appointment and schedule their illegal immigration and the administration will you know, meet them at the ports of entry, the government will, and then just release them, just like they were doing when people crossed illegally before and turned themselves in. And so this was billed as a way to reduce illegal immigration, even though it's all still illegal, but reduce illegal entries and arrests by Border Patrol agents. It was a dishonest policy anyway, because it wasn't really designed to reduce illegal immigration just to change the venue of it, funnel it through ostensibly legal pathways, even though they themselves are illegal. So it's in that context that the huge jump in July of arrests between ports of entry by the Border Patrol is notable, that it seems what happened is that the June numbers were lower because with new rules in place, smugglers and aliens decided to wait and see what the result would be. And many of them were using this CBP-1 process. And as Todd Benzman on our staff has reported, a lot of people were just crossing and getting let go anyway, even though supposedly there were these new rules that if you crossed illegally and hadn't applied for asylum in one of the other countries you passed through, that you wouldn't be allowed to apply here and you'd be deported. Presumably, DHS is applying that to some people, but it's not doing it widely enough to actually deter people from crossing illegally. And what we've seen is a huge increase in arrests. And the Post reported that in addition to the 130,000 illegal entries that the Border Patrol stopped, there were another 50,000 illegal immigrants who came in through the ports of entry, basically with this CBP-1 app. You put those together, you've got, in July, a level of illegal immigration at the border that we know about of something like 180,000, which is is up there. It's not the record-breaking number yet, but it's very high, especially considering in July it's extraordinarily hot down on the border, and even more so in the part of the border where there's the biggest increase in crossings, which is in southern Arizona in the Tucson sector, something we've written about on our blog. And so the bottom line is the administration's attempt 
to make the border crisis go away, at least be removed from the news coverage by engineering a reduction in border patrol arrests and making up with it through scheduled illegal immigration through the ports of entry isn't working. What we're getting is increased illegal immigration between ports of entry and increased illegal immigration at the ports of entry. And so what this really suggests is the administration cannot deal with this border crisis without doing a 180 and actually committing itself to enforcing immigration law. They can't just gimmick their way out of this problem, even though I expect they're going to keep trying to do that for another year and a half. But we'll see what conclusions they come to, and we will talk about it on this program in the future. In the meantime, thank you for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy. Please leave us a rating or review if your podcast platform allows for that. And in any case, feel free to email us at center at cis.org if you have any ideas, suggestions, criticisms, or compliments. Until next episode, this is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, hoping that you will tune in to our next episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. 